What's going on, everybody? It's Mitch from RespectMyRegion.com, back with another episode of the RMR podcast. Today, joined by special guest Ken Kulo of Chameleon Glass. How you doing today, Ken? Great. How you doing, Mitch? Uh, I cannot complain, man. Cannot complain. I'm up here in the Seattle area. We had a nice, mild day today um, in, in, in betwixt uh, like a week of rain, so I, I'm, I'm stoked, man. I miss the rain. For all the people that, that uh, complain about the rain, we're going to be 115 by the end of the week, and we're in a kind of a drought situation down here in the desert. So I miss the rain. I, I, you know, trips to Seattle are great. The gray is great. I like the rain. So uh, when you don't have it, you miss it. Absolutely. You know, and, and I like it too. I, I, you know, people always think of Seattle as the rain, but I always tell everyone it's like this, it's either gray or this drizzle where you like don't even get wet. You know, it's always somehow raining, but you just don't really, it's not like a torrential downpour but it does get old after about eight or nine months and and you were joining me from what part i forget uh what city of arizona you're located in phoenix phoenix okay yeah so you're definitely right there in the in the peak of the hotness man the oven yeah absolutely so um i, I like to kick off every episode or, or every guest uh conversation with our guests is kind of their origin story around cannabis obviously you know, glass online. We, we don't necessarily talk directly about cannabis and a lot of product descriptions, tobacco pipes and things of that nature. But, uh, you know, what we do at RMR is cover the cannabis industry and glass has a very big impact and place within the industry. So I'm just kind of curious of, of your origin story uh, personally and professionally around the plant. Around the plant um, was, you know, it was high school and um it was one of those things where I was probably um, a little bit of an angry young man growing up. And uh, um, then all of a sudden in, you know, I admit it, ninth grade, um, I went to a party, did some hash under glass. And for like a day and a half afterwards, everything was right with the world. And I didn't really understand it at that point. All I knew was uh, things were a lot better with cannabis. And uh, so I started smoking on a regular basis uh, whenever I could. Um, pretty traditional parents, so uh, I had to keep it under wraps. And, um, you know, since that time, except for a few years in the U.S. Army, I, uh, cannabis has been a big part of my life ever since. And um, what turns out is, yeah, I'm one of those people that uh, my body doesn't quite manufacture everything that I need. So I've got high cholesterol and I don't have the right uh, blood pressure control hormones. And my endocannabinoid system doesn't produce enough uh, cannabinoids for me to regulate my mood properly. And so um when you get me on a bad day it's usually because i have not been smoking recently and uh so that's my my cannabis story is more of a biological need mm. and uh i thoroughly enjoy the the headspace of it um you know it i'm not gonna bs i uh thc makes me feel good cbd keeps my mood right and cbg helps me to go to sleep and stay asleep so uh Anytime during the day, I've got uh, many, many different uh, cannabinoids running around in my system. Absolutely. I love that you're in tune with the obviously with the science of the plant and, and the different applications and, and, and the benefits in the daily life. I know a lot of us daily consumers, 
you know, and so it's like, is it recreational? Is it medical? You know, for some of us, it's a lot of things yeah. <laughs> at a lot of different points, depending on the day, the part of the day that that's, mm-hmm. that's what it's doing for me. Yeah. So, uh, you know, along, alongside that, um, you know, what's, what's your favorite way to consume, obviously being in the glass industry and, you know, you're exposed to a ton of different pieces and consumption methods, but what, what's kind of your preferred uh, consumption method? Um, you know, if I'm on the go, I always have a glass hand pipe with me. If I'm at home, it's going to be out of one of my bongs. So I do prefer water filtration, not so much for the filtration part of it as much as the cooling part of it. Absolutely. But, uh, you know, definitely, you know, I grew up with, uh, my first pipe. I had a wood pipe was my first piece and it had a little, uh, lid that went off. And uh, it looked like uh, a Spock ear, so that was Dr. Spock. And uh, I've had uh, my fair share of metal pipes. And um, But at this point in time, and probably for the last 30 years, it's always been glass. And then along with that, you just mentioned you had a name for your piece. Most glass heads, uh, you know, have a name for each individual piece. Are, are you, I'm sure you have countless pieces. So maybe some go name, some go unnamed, but how many of your pieces are named and, and what's the inspiration behind that you use to come up with a name for a piece? Uh, it's strictly, you know, what it looks like or what, uh, like I'll also name pieces for events like uh, my wife and I go to Telluride Bluegrass, so there's the the Telluride piece, hmm. um, and then um, there's a couple of different like um, I have a really black nasty one, intentionally black nasty, like half sandblasted, half not, a lot of sharp parts on it, and that's my death metal piece. Hmm. Um, and then there's you know Doctor Spock, I got a Willy Wonka, uh, so. You know, I name all of our designs too. We uh, a lot of people kind of laugh when I I'll rattle off names instead of just SKU numbers because I feel like giving a piece a name kind of lends a little bit more to the soul of each one of them. Mm. And so, if you get you know on the on the website, you'll start seeing that there's a lot of websites out there that's like you know thick frit head blah, and it's like more of a description of, of what it is or how it's made. Yeah. Whereas I have a tendency of name pieces, I'll sit back and free associate, pull a tube, and the name comes to me, and that's it. So if you were to sit and read my list of SKUs, you'd think I was pretty much high 24 <laughs> seven. I love that. But, but that's the, that's the consumer base, right? Any, any glass has got their, their shelf or their cabinet or their, you know, their storage right. and different names, different occasions. Absolutely. That, that's yeah. I, I know. I, I understand how that goes. When did you first start blowing glass or, or did it start with like a different art form or medium before you, before you made your way to glass? You know, it was uh, it wasn't uh, the traditional route. Um, I worked for uh, a company called General Electric when I was living in the Midwest, and um, we made fluorescent light bulbs at a couple of plants centered around northern Ohio. Uh, back before uh, that became uh, not such a cool thing to do, and so the the machines we we used needed constant upkeep. And so I got to know glass by function 
because as the plant engineer or visiting plant engineer or process engineer, we really had to understand how the glass behaved before we could, you know, show the machines how to do what we wanted them to do, so to speak. And so I got to know um, soft glass, which is uh, not what I work in right now, but um, that's really where uh, it came from. And it was it was totally totally by accident. Um, you know, I just that was my first assignment off of MMP and figure it out. And so I uh, got to know how uh, the dollops worked and how the how the ovens were working and, you know, which of the chemicals that we were throwing into the mix was going to do what with the glass. And this made it brittle and that made it soft and buttery. And this, you know, this furnace ran at this amount. And there was another furnace that you couldn't get, a, you know, above melting point on. And so it all came together. And then... They sent everything to China, and um, hey, Ken, great career opportunity. You can move to Shenzhen, and all the guys coming back from MMP all said the same thing, and they quit. They all said, "Forget it. Uh, they don't like you. They're never going to like you. As soon as they figure out what you've got, you're going to end up. You know, the keys won't work anymore. Your telephone won't ring." And you're going to try and get a, a plane back to the States as quickly as possible. And so that was when I said, see a GE. And uh, I was looking around and it was right about the time uh, I was still, uh, Jerry was still around with us. And every time I went out uh, to a show and I was hanging out a lot, there were always yeah, it wasn't really prevalent, but there was always like five or six tarps or blankets out in the parking lot that you could buy glass pipes at. And I'm like, you know, okay, but I know about glass. This isn't, you know, only if you keep it at home. And the guys were like, no, 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 this is this is something different. This is Pyrex. This is sodium or not. Uh, this is borosilicate. And so, you know, never used it, got into it, loved it, started reading up. Uh, Bob Snodgrass had done his first couple of pieces, got to meet him out at uh, Soldier Field for a show, and just kind of see the, so like the background of it was, is I did all the, the Army and Engineer stuff because I knew I was going to get a job and was going to get a scholarship to go to school. But my other high school career was an artist, and most of my family are starving artists, with the emphasis on starving. And so I, I never really thought that I could make a go of it doing artwork, but functional artwork is, you know, legit, whether it's plates and cups and goblets and stuff like that, or, you know, bongs, pipes, that kind of a thing. And so... That's uh, where I made the transition to um, I don't have a job to let's make a go of this because I don't have anything to lose right now. I was young and stupid and didn't know any better. I, I love that. And I, and I love the uh, and can associate with just the, the, the merging of two worlds, right? Like this this thing that you want, this passion, create, creative outlet that you didn't know could be a job. And then you go out, take take the safe route, if you will. And then realize, like, identify the connection back to the passion. 
I, I, re I really like that. What, what was your first like couple experiences blowing blowing glass like in, in this vein um, to make pieces? And, and what was that process like? Did you learn from someone else or just kind of start, you know, had those tools already and started kind of making it go on your own? Well, it's a, it's an interesting thing. Chameleon glass actually existed before me. Um, I got into it and the, the guy who really started it um, had put the company up for sale for a number of different reasons. And um, when I visited him, buying a business is not, not all that different from buying a house. And so you go in, you, you know, you check out the plumbing, you check out uh, the, the, the air conditioner, whatever, the roof. And same thing with the business, the AR, the, the business end of it. And uh, um, he, uh, he wanted nothing to do with manufacturing. And it was getting to the point where he was, he, he was having difficulty keeping up because um, it was really kind of backyard garage type blowing and, you know, show up at the meet and, you know, buy 10 of those and 20 of those. And then you'd never see the blower again. And it was, it's impossible to run a business that way. Um, and he was struggling with it and here I am and I'm like, okay, you know, we need to, need to do this. You got to have a high pressure vaporizer on this end. You got to control gas, uh, pressure fluctuations. So you've got, you know, consistent heat at the torch. And I, I looked at it from much more of a, you know, technical aspect. And so my first time was really just setting up the the first uh studio and sitting down and what does this torch do at this pressure and how much um you know how much heat can we apply before it goes to liquefaction and then had a couple of guys um i remember randy kennedy helped me out quite a bit i sat and watched him threw my shades on and made some absolute shankers <laughs> But, uh, you know, the uh, the whole uh, color change thing was something that I I loved and, you know, sitting there and being able to, number one, sit in front of something that is much hotter than lava coming out of a volcano. Mm. Lava at a volcano is about 1,400 degrees Fahrenheit, give or take. And the torches that we have start at 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. And just that mad rush of, I've got something in my hands right now. That's, it's literally like holding a grenade. It's ticking away. You've got to do something with it. And you better know what you're doing because if it lands in your lap, it gets ugly real quick. So um, mother of invention, you, you learn how to control it. And uh, after you learn how to control it, then you learn how to decorate it. And after you learn how to decorate it, then you learn how to shape it and turn it into, you know, next level of cool and next level of function. And so, um, you know, I've been very, also very lucky to have a lot of really giving individuals who either join me to help train, paid or unpaid, uh, work for me that was, you know, just stellar, uh, had a, a host of really good guys, probably, uh, mixed glass. Mike Coughlin was most formative in my 
ideal uh, ideas of how we can manipulate the media and turn it into the, you know, as, as visually attractive and as functional as possible. And so I've just been really blessed to have access to people who contributed and didn't mind sharing. And that was, uh, you know, the business was since 1991. I took over in 2000, right after Y2K. And, um, you know, it's been a, it's been a hell of a ride ever since. And, you know, something I want to touch on is obviously with glass pieces there, there there's two components you, you were speaking on functionality and then like the creative, the design, mm-hmm. obviously to have something, you know, I feel like that probably cuts through the mold for you. It's got to touch on both of those. But if you could weigh which one is more impactful to you in terms of functionality or or just like creativity, which one would you put a little more weight on? It's a creativity for sure. I, The beauty in in the art, it's, you know, it's, it's beauty first, function second. Big fan of function. I mean, uh, we've designed some really cool functional pieces. Uh, but if I, if I chose one, Easy peasy lemon squeezy. It's it's the beauty of the art. Yeah, okay, that that makes sense. And and with that functionality, what is what is what are those things that you're constantly looking to improve or or provide through functionality? Well, I mean, it's it's one of those things. Functionality is there's two there's two parts of it. Um, there's the obvious one that everybody sees uh, at the sesh or online or at the the demo or from the influencer, you know, this, you know, we put the slits this way to make the, the water in the bowl rotate, or we add this percolator or we do something of that nature. Then there's the secondary function, which is probably a little bit more where I'm parked, which is, uh, and it's the engineer in me. I apologize. I, it's, I look at stuff and say, how can this get better? You know, what What small thing is going to dramatically improve or revolutionize what is otherwise a pretty bland or straightforward thing? Um, you know, probably the first one that we did back in 02 uh, was the Ash Catcher mouthpiece. You know, it was real simple. I hated screens. You know, number one, people were still putting metal screens in pipes. Blech. You know, you just, all you did was taste the the screen, yeah. um, and uh, if you didn't have a screen though, and, and if the bowl hole is too small or the bowl hole is too big, too big you get pull through, too small you get clogging, and so. But there's always a certain amount of pull through, and you know, just sitting there and that epiphany in the shower. Um, came up and I'm like, well, we drop a bowl into where we want to smoke it. We can use the same tool. We can put a bowl in the mouthpiece. And that way, instead of funneling all the ash to the hole in the mouthpiece right there, it's actually going to deflect all of that stuff and have it stick in the glass instead okay, so I got to clean the pipe a little bit more often, but I'm not getting ash in my mouth. And so it's those little things that you take for granted, you take for granted, take for granted, and all of a sudden you really kind of rethink it after a while and say, and, and you know, ash catcher mouthpieces are ubiquitous now. They're mm-hmm. they're all over the place and everybody uh, uses them. 
And uh, unfortunately, in the cannabis industry to this date, I'm not allowed to have patents or anything like that mm. because I'm in a federally illegal business of drug paraphernalia. So, um, you know, we, we create stuff and it gets passed around and that's just the way it is in the cannabis business. Um, I think one of the, uh, the more interesting was we've done, everybody has seen Gandalf pipes and I was sitting there the other day and your standard Gandalf, except for this thing. Mm. And just taking an extra, let's call it minute in the torch right there, very gently warming it up so you don't burn the silver fume off. You create a an area where gravity, which we use gravity all the time. It's not really glass blowing as much as hand forming it. Um, Gravity is a way or a tool that we use to divert smoke or divert bubbles. And by putting that little bubble in the middle of the stem, I can use that as a natural perk because the water will mm. constantly fall in on itself in that bubble and replenish in the bottom. So it's acting like a percolator, but there's nothing else. It's just mm. the laws of physics at work and by putting that just that little change in there i can now provide for my customers a dry piece when you want it or you put about a tablespoon of water in there and you've got a natural perk bubbler on your hands hmm. so it's those little things that you can do to reinvent what is a standard looking thing and for very little more cost, provide a supremely more functional piece for people to buy. So that's the kind of stuff that I look at. So in the grand scheme of things on function, the high-end stuff um, is uh, kind of the province of, uh, when you look at the super high-end US-made stuff, it's thousands of dollars. Uh, the super high-end functional stuff, it, since the business is so labor dependent. 70% of my bottom line is taken by paying people to make pipes. And that's not true of most businesses. Right. Most businesses, you know, 30, 35% labor cost were much higher than that. Um, and so by, ne by necessity, finding neat ways, you know, hacks or uh, tricks like that to improve functionality. Those are the things that I'm always kind of looking at that pipe that I've been making for the last seven or eight years and saying, what can we do with that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's that, you know, I totally understand that like what makes pieces super expensive is, you know, the limited being limited, being exclusive, taking a lot of time going into something, some, some artists that might have, that might have high demand, but even looking into like your more, you know, standard average road, uh, pieces, right? That, that the common person is going to pursue higher end is going to be more a collector. Someone's really into the art of it, but on your average pieces, there's obviously that price difference in terms of things that are made in the U S versus things that are made overseas. Same thing with, with clothing, textiles and anything. And it's due to that labor. The cost of labor per hour is dramatically different in, in either area. And there's also a litany of some other things, but as that you worked in another industry where things, obviously manufacturing shifted to China, that's 
obviously also happened uh, in, in this industry around glass as well. What is kind of your thoughts and, and just feelings on, on kind of the current, current environment in terms of just that average piece for the average consumer being made in the U.S. versus being made overseas? Uh, it's for the because it's such a high labor content kind of a, um, you know, process, uh, they're always going to win. And that's a shame, but um, because we're federally illegal still, we don't get a lot of coverage from uh, legal circles. I mean, you go down to your local uh, dispensary and, you know, they're still dealing with ATMs because they can't have credit cards. There are, you know, really foundational issues in the cannabis industry that you really have to love doing what we do to stay here. Business-wise, my, my, when I put my business hat on, um, yeah, it, I get it. Um, the guys that that go out and go to China, um, I wish they did their own thing instead of, instead of knocking stuff off of Instagram. But uh, like I said, that there's nothing to be done about that quite yet. Um, but uh, there are there's good reasons. I mean, right now China operates at um, without getting into the emotional issues, like um, I just had a, uh, I got off of another interview where they were talking about China and um, it's June, you know, it's it's Pride Month. And so they were talking about, you know, those things. And I was like, yeah, I mean, honestly, the emotional issue is, is that if you're gay in China, you're going to a re-education camp with uh, the... Uyghurs, Uyghurs, I can't pronounce that shit. Mm. Um, and I just swore. Sorry about that. Um, uh, but um, you know, when it comes down to it, the because I'm on the creative end, um, the creativity has to be done here. And I think that one of the areas that that we still do pretty well at is is the creation the act of creation the the fact that there are still creators there were a lot more but they're still out there and and i'm still really happy to have creators who are working with our industry like north star and glass alchemy and all of the uh the color creators out there the boro batch guys and uh they come out with fabulous colors that you know we have access to that overseas doesn't get immediately. I mean, they have them, you can see them online. Uh, but so that's, that's one of those things, but um, I'm probably getting off topic. Uh, I think that it's, it's something that I, I understand the numbers don't play out. I think that if you're asking me about the difference, I would just like to hear people own it. That's my big thing. You know, hmm. if you understand that something's made in you and that your neighbor who makes 25 bucks an hour is making that thing and you're buying it to understand that the cart in Shenzhen is making $25 a month should understand what is such a thing as a and if you do any shipping whatsoever, you understand that the government does care where th things come from. It used to be, hey, Sonny, back in the day, uh, when I was growing up, it was 
everything was labeled as made in Taiwan, made in Japan, made in the Czech Republic, made in France. People kind of took pride in where things were actually created. Now a bone of contention, people don't want to tell you it's from China. They say stuff like, oh, it's shipped from Austin or designed in California or whatnot, which is all double talk to make you think you're make, getting a made in USA. And wow. of course, that's that's the money because they're 290 double perk bubblers bought news, kiddo. That, that cost them $2 to make in China. Now they spend more on marketing, that's for sure, but uh, um, it's uh, hiding where it's from is my big thing as far as uh, my business goes. I'd like people to, to own it. Yeah, no, that, that that makes sense. And that's why you say the create in, in the United States. And myself, personally, I look at that and I'm like, ah, I know exactly what this is. But to the average consumer, they're, they're just going to gloss over it, connect certain dots, and it's not exactly telling the, the correct story. Um, you know, another thing with, with manufacturing, you know, certain things, uh, stateside versus overseas, you know, quality, that's, that's a quality is always a subjective conversation. What makes something the best or, or better that can be subjective or it can be backed obviously with, with some factuals. Um, what's your take on, on, on the production, at least the, the quality, I mean, it's beyond just like the labor it goes into something that's labor intensive. It's, it's clear, clear cut, like why something's going to cost more and feeling, like you said, feeling prideful. But what about that quality to the end consumer and kind of where's that line in terms of things that are traditionally made overseas and then traditionally made stateside? Um, I actually have a, a pretty good background here because we were, were having a hell of a General Electric with the uh, first set that went overseas to China. Um, just terrible, terrible uh, durability issues. And what I would say is, you know, for those of you here, there's a, a book that came out that is called Poorly Made in China. And it's much to bag on um, the, you know, always, I always say this, it's the line workers that I'm talking about. It's the, the companies that, and how they're run. And so um, an example of this, I, uh, I have a, an older truck, um, good old fashioned GMC. Uh, over 200,000 miles in a newer ca uh, car, a Ford, and um, I had to, and all of the weather stripping on the windows was all dry rotted out, and I assumed it was because of the UV radiation here in Phoenix. Guy said, "No, no, no. This is, you know, this was endemic to this this year series of years. We had put in a whole bunch of specifications." the Chinese didn't because if you can't see it they don't do it and so I did some reading on it and as an example there is UV and plasticizer that go into the injection molding process and because you and I look at the car and it looks like black rubber to us it's black rubber no it's Chinese black rubber and that's going to rot up on you in about two or three years versus the stabilized this was made in USA and they did it the right way and so in much the same vein with glass what I've there's two things that I, I can say with absolute authority number one they don't always use pyrex 
there is a uh, refractory index that every every material has, uh, every transparent material. And when you have gas and you put it into, in this case, mineral oil being the refractive medium, glass will disappear and certain glass will stay uh, in view. When you use soft glass or sodium silicate, disappear in mineral oil. You can't see it. The actually bends around it instead of going through. When you've got borosilicate, you can still see it. And I just on a, on a whim went out, bought a couple of pieces that I knew were Chinese, dunked them in mineral oil, and sure enough, um, what was purported to be Pyrex disappeared. Uh, mm. You know, I called the owner of that company and said, hey, I got bad news for you. Your specimens are not being followed. Uh, he thought I was a crackhead and, you know, laughed at me. Uh, so I made him a video and I was like, go try it yourself. And um, so he came back and he, he's like, I can't even believe it. And should it be clear borosilicate? Was absolutely not durable for what we do. Uh, the second thing that you see that China is very good at avoiding is the, the annealing process. And so, uh, forgive me for technical stuff, but, but when you have a, a crystal lattice, whether it's steel or glass, when you bend, findle, and mutilate it to turn to the door side panel of your car or your windshield or a glass bong, which you're destroying the internal structure. You can't see that, but you do see it in performance. Things break, they'll either rust or they'll fail quicker. And so what the Chinese don't do is I've seen studio after shop, after factory, after video, when stuff comes out of and goes out onto a cooling table. What are you doing? And, you know, you have to heat treat. We call it annealing. You can't see it. You can see the copious number of $100 bills going out of my wallet because we heat treat and anneal everything. Uh, I'm definitely a favorite of the local electricity uh, uh, provider. APS loves me because we run a, a lot of annealings and they're not cheap to buy and, and they're not, they're even less than because we're keeping the glass at a consistent 1,050 degrees after we work it. What that allows is, is that once you've destroyed the crystal structure, the heat Heat allows the glass to flow back into and lock back there so that it's nice and strong. If you don't anneal it, you're getting a structure that looks like this. So the first time you pop that glass is going to crack, shatter, be destroyed. Mm. And glass always breaks. Uh, there is no unbreakable glass out there. Sorry, everybody. Uh, but Pyrex annealed properly is strong, will last. And one of my favorite things to do is to field emails from 
20, 25 year people that are like, wow, you know, I just broke my, you know, my Saturn bub, or I just uh, broke, you know, this thing. Do you guys still make that by any chance? Sorry, no, that's 25 years old, but uh, that's one of those things. That you want the quality issue? Yeah, it's, a, it's always the things you can't see. The drywall in hmm. Florida, China put, put a bunch of lead in it. Now everybody in lead poisoning. Oops. Uh, you know, a couple of years back when they were adding melamine, uh, baby formula is a big thing right now. The producers tried to send that shit to China too. Melamine and a couple of kids died. And then we found out the hard way that you can't see melamine in a white powder or a white, white liquid. So if you can't see it, China ain't going to do it. And that's just, there's a lot of many things in the United States that we take for granted because we have a, a top heavy but necessary legal system that gives people the opportunity to go back. And if somebody produces something that's bad for you or is doesn't work the right way, there's either a lawsuit or a recall. Good luck with getting a Chinese recall. Ain't going to happen. Thank you for explaining that. that. Yeah. Yeah, it, it extends past the, like you said, not things that you see and honestly not things that, that you think of. And, and and I can definitely understand that. Thank you for providing those examples. Move, moving back to Chameleon for a second and some of the stuff you guys do. Could you give me some insight on on the uh, the Typhoon series? Yeah, so um, I'm not going to make any bones about it. I had to, I had a smoke shop, a place tobacco and gift here in Phoenix, a couple of locations. And um, there was a company in Germany called Hurricane, and they made water pipes. And um, the store down the street from me uh, made a call, and uh, it's a pretty funny story. He, he was a grower, and he had a store, and I was a glassblower, and I had a store. And he called up, up um, the Hurricane to North Carolina and said, hey, you know, this guy's knocking your shit off, blah, blah, blah. And I was, it was actually him. And he had, to, that's where the tsunami uh, line of pipes came out of China. It was actually Freddie. And uh, so, you know, he, you know, called up and said all kinds of rotten things. And uh, that was the end of my hurricane. And so I, uh, and it was a good seller. So I sat back and I was kind of like, well, all right. I'm not going to knock his shit off. Freddie won, ha ha, he got me um, on that one because I had been to Germany and speak fluent German. And uh, so when uh, I ran into the owner of Hurricane at uh, the trade show in Vegas, we had a nice conversation that uh, ended Freddie's uh, distributorship. But uh, the long was I wanted to do something that utilized the um, – you know Bernoulli's law is that you know basically the the common, in the common tongue Bernoulli's law is nature abhors a vacuum, and when you create a vacuum, nature is going to try to destroy that as fast as possible. And so uh, back then, uh, I was working with Adam, which was one of the guys on my staff, and we were like, okay, what do we do to create 
a situation where we limit the vacuum at the bowl and we create the vacuum at the mouthpiece, if you can get enough kilopascal between there, that's how the hurricane works. We don't want to have any water. We don't want to have a big piece. Again, going back to me, pipe for the people type of a thing. We did the, uh, the typhoon and we made what I, you know, we weekly, um, we put it through its paces by attaching it to a parts per million counter and we refined the piece, we refined the piece, we refined the piece. And so um, what we found was, is that high dispersion of particulate was what was going to cause the tar and ashes that were still relatively hot to stick to the inside of the glass. So we went with, and, and of course, um, in aerodynamics, you want edges. That's why airplanes and spaceships are all smooth. And so slits weren't going to do it because they have hard 90-degree angles on it. So what we tried to do was to design a piece that, that had zero 90 degree or, or no edges whatsoever. And also a piece that developed the amount of vacuum that would really without concentrating all of the smoke in the center. And because the smoke, the smoke looks good in the center, but it doesn't do it for the filtration. It's just a, a show. And so we came out with the original type. Uh, it was on the market for, for a couple of years. And then I had got into it with a company that no longer exists in in Austin, and found out that he was king um, the design. Unfortunately, I had to get an attorney involved, and uh, my convincing enough to feel that he probably shouldn't do that. And um, so we've been running with this typhoon design that creates a, a good flow, is not a turbulent uh, kind of, of uh, airflow, smoke flow, but does disperse the smoke so that the heavier particles can use the centrifugal filtration, uh, centrifugal or centripetal force to force the larger particles onto the edge of the glass where the ambient air, so they stick. And so, so the Typhoon was uh, was a real hit, uh, still outperforms, partly-wise, anything on the market, and uh, is still a, a great seller. And I've got people that, uh, you know, really swear by it as best dry pipe you can get. It's a, it's a dry pipe that smokes like a water pipe. Hmm. Using so that's science uh, to, to make that happen. This guy is definitely a hero. <laughs> I, I love it, man. I love it. What uh what what do you got next for Chameleon throughout the, the rest of the year? Well, um probably the, the big thing that we've got going on is uh, a gentleman uh Came where we talked for a long time, and um, 
he uh, had been doing inter- um had been kind of bouncing around uh you got uh, two two big areas where glass um glass artistry is really fostered it's an east coast west coast thing you got that uh, eugene on the west coast and you got Asheville on the on the east coast and he had bounced before and forth between those two uh I'd spent some time in vegas la that kind of a thing and so the the big new thing for me is definitely um we had uh, it orphaned a lot of water pipes after black black monday with Ash- Ashcroft. And once we got to, I, I uh, was involved with MPP and we got Prop 203 pushed through here in Arizona for medical back in the day. And so watching things and I always wanted to get back to the, the functional art water pipes, wanted to get back into the artistry of that. And so about three years ago, you know, got the blades out of storage make general feather pattern wrap and rake, you know, good color changer kind of stuff, but nothing. Wow. And uh, I, Ryan came up and he's like, you're in the wow factor and I can do that. And so we shook hands and he's been uh, going through and there's a big difference between true one-off artistry and production. Production, mm-hmm. while it's not machine, it's still all handmade. Production is a little bit more of a bitch because it's got to be pretty certain amount to make it available financially. Um, you have to have access to consistent raw materials, consistent processing. And so it's a uh, there's a lot of things that go in making an artist. Takes a while, and I would say that the big new thing for us is that we finally hit our stride. We're putting them. We're putting out beautiful artwork in bongs, the way I've always been known to put out beautiful artwork in handpipes and chillums and you know the more of the dry stuff. Um, and so the thing I'm most excited about is larger vessel work that still, still has that beautiful eye catching and yet we're going to make 10 of them in a day kind of a thing. Whereas, you know, mm-hmm. something that is really spectacular, the artist could be working on for weeks on end. And that's, uh, that's really good for individuals, but it doesn't necessarily translate to what we do, which is much more of a format. So I'm really excited. That's the big new thing for me is to get back into uh, having the opportunity to, without without a lot of concern uh, from the federal authorities, get back into making water pipes. Because that really was, if you look at who got popped on Black Monday, it was all the water. It was Chong because it was Tommy. They said it was Jason yeah. because it was JP. But it was all water. Anybody who was in the water business got visited. I don't know how I didn't. Um, we were still mainly hand pipes at that time. But man, as of 2003, 
that was then as of 2015, we got back into it, got the blades out of storage, got things rolling, and finally have gotten into that rhythm where we're like, okay, five days today, 10 of those tomorrow, this series on Thursday. You know, oh, look, we got this color from Glass Alchemy again. Let's do some of these. So it's really, that's the exciting part of what I do. I love that. And, and thank you. I was going to ask about that, the production versus the unique art and what goes into that while still keeping it handmade. So um, lots, lots of game there. Um, Ken, really appreciate you hopping on here and chatting with us today, letting people know about Chameleon, your journey, and just so many aspects of the glass game. I know I learned some stuff. Anybody out there looking for more information, chameleonglass.com. Anything else you want to plug real quick before I get you up out of here? No, man, I really appreciate the opportunity. It's been a fun uh, if you guys uh, have any questions, need to get some answers, you know where to find me. And uh, again, thanks for having me on the cast. Awesome. Thank you, Ken. This is the RMR Podcast, episode 39. We'll be back with you guys next week.